If you uh, have a Bible, could I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 24? It's page 1121 in the uh, Red Pew Bibles, and it would, if at all possible, if you could see a copy of God's Word, it would be great. But just as you look that up, let me ask you a question. Uh, this series has been about encouraging us to think about our up, in, and out relationships, our up relationship with God, our relationship with each other, the in dimension, and then our relationship with those who are not yet Christians. But as we think about this kind of final dimension, this out dimension, and specifically as we think about our witness and our commission and our calling as Christians to share our faith with our neighbors, here's the question I want to ask. Are there certain aspects of the gospel that we tend to avoid when talking to others about Christianity? Are there certain subjects that we're reluctant to mention? For example, judgment, sin, or morality, people's lifestyle choices. Are there certain things we kind of avoid talking about, if we're honest? In Acts 24, uh, Paul, you'll see, is in Caesarea, and he's facing a set of very hostile uh, charges and accusations, which in the final part of this book seems to increasingly be the norm. And last week, if you were here, you'll remember that, that we left him at the end of chapter 20, and so what I'm really trying to do here for a moment is just fill in the gaps. But last week, we left him at the end of chapter 20 in a place called Miletus, speaking into the lives of the Ephesian elders. But from that point in time until here at the beginning of chapter 24, Paul appears to stumble or is led from one crisis to another. He's pursued from pillar to post. His life is under constant threat. And each time he speaks up and he speaks out for Jesus, every single time, as he takes the opportunity or is given the opportunity to verbally defend himself and share his faith. So in chapter 21, we find him in Jerusalem. And a huge crowd, it says, grabbed him from the temple and started beating him to death. And he was only rescued whenever a Roman commander, who it seems had some kind of responsibility for civic peace, he steps in and he drags Paul out from this crowd who are beating him to death and takes him to the local barracks. And on the steps of the local barracks, Paul defends himself. Once the commander, as the commander listens to Paul's defense, he realizes that Paul is a Roman citizen. And so he releases him over to the Sanhedrin, who are that powerful ruling body who deal with Jewish political and religious life. In this incident, Paul only says one sentence. He only says one thing whenever someone punches him in the mouth. And whenever that happens, there's the whole internal row breaks out which led to a situation where, again, the Roman commander has to step in because, quote, he, he feared Paul was going to be ripped to pieces. And so, again, he drags Paul back to the army barracks. A day later, 40-plus Jewish men resolved under oath, so this is serious, to not eat or drink ever again until they kill Paul. This time, Paul's nephew gets wind of the plot, 
sends news to the Roman commander who decides he's had enough. It's time to offload this problem. It's time to pass Paul on. And so he dispatches Paul to Caesarea, which is about 65 miles away, where he asks the local governor of Caesarea, a man called Felix, to listen to the accusations against Paul. And that's where we pick up the story. So if you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to read at this stage the first nine verses. You're going to be up and down three times during the sermon, so let's stand for the public reading of God's Word, part A. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. And when Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you would be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's the ringleader of a Nazarene sect, and he even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Grab a seat. Whenever you want to win a contentious and tricky legal case, you hire a smooth-talking lawyer and a silver-tongued barrister like Dave Schofield, who will, who will sweet-talk the judge and jury. And in first century Caesarea, Tertullus was that man. And as he prepared to spell out his accusations against Paul to Felix, he starts, you'll notice, he starts by affirming the judge. Calls him most excellent. Expresses his gratitude for his brilliant leadership and apologizes for bothering him. It's a really clever move. It's a clever tactic. And I've no doubt he wasn't the first and certainly not the last barrister to use flattery in the courtroom. Now, the fact is, most judges can see straight through it. Don't entertain it for a moment. But some are taken in by it, especially if they like what they're hearing about themselves, irrespective of whether it's true or not. Most people hearing Tertullus's opening remarks would have had a wry smile on their face. And the majority of historians ever since have seriously questioned the barrister's opening remarks to Felix because the reality is there was very little truth in any of it. But whenever you're trying to win a case for your client and earn brownie points with the judge, the whole truth and nothing but the truth is often a casualty. You see, Felix, according to one historian, was one of the most depraved men of his time. So this idea that he was excellent... This idea that he had provided great leadership at that time in his was a nonsense. But Tertullus flattered him in order to gain a listening ear and a sympathetic ear. Tertullus then spells out his accusations. There are four of them. This guy's a troublemaker. He's a riot starter. He's the ringleader of a sect. And he's a temple desecrator, or at least he's tried to be. Those were serious charges. 
Paul is portrayed as a rabble-rouser, a tormentor of civil unrest, a loose cannon, and a badly behaved citizen. And therefore, according to Tertullus, Felix, you need to examine him, you need to try him, you need to sort him. The other Jews who are there listening to Tertullus right behind him, they then weigh in and say, see everything he just said? Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Then, it's now over to Felix and Paul for his defense. Please stand as we pick up verse 10. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you've been judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogue or anyone else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they're now making against me. However, I do admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they have found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it is this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and to permit his friends to take care of his needs. Grab a seat. So you maybe notice that, that Paul's opening remarks to Felix are factual rather than flattering or flowery. Okay? He says, I know that for a number of years you've been judge over this nation. Paul starts off by just telling the truth. Just tells the truth. He wasn't prepared to play mind games. He wasn't prepared to manipulate egos or manipulate the system. And then one by one, Paul goes about refuting and addressing all of these accusations that are made against him. And he walks Felix through events in Jerusalem, how he was there actually to bring gifts for the poor. That, that's why I was there. That, that's hardly the behavior of a revolutionary or anyone who is anti-Jewish. And I was at the temple, by the way, purifying myself. I wasn't desecrating the place. Paul does admit, yeah, yes, I am associated with the way, but, but it's not a sect. And if there was an issue that caused a bit of a disturbance, it was when I shouted about the issue regarding the resurrection of the dead. Paul's defense, is, it's articulate. It's measured. It's truthful. It's truth-filled. It's honest. And Felix, on hearing it, decides, well, well, he doesn't. He stalls. He adjourns proceedings. He places Paul in custody, but he says, listen, I'm going to give him a certain amount of freedom. Your friends can look after you while you're in custody. Now, before we kind of move on to what happened next, let, let me go back and pick up a key phrase that Paul used during his defense. 
This is a key line in there that, that, that can't be missed or overlooked. Because although there is a sense, and, and many of you maybe feel this, where, where Paul's situation, Paul's circumstances are unique to him. I'm never going to be in that sort of situation. Therefore, I'm finding this really hard to relate to. Well, let's be honest. For many of us, we can't make connections easily with Paul in this situation. But there is an important lesson and principle embedded in here regarding our witness or regarding anything we ever say as Christians by way of defense of our faith. Or in terms of how any of us who are Christians live as followers of the way, Jesus. And this phrase and this principle and this value is found in verse 16. In fact, it is verse 16. So, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. If you have a Bible, flick over to the first verse of chapter 23. You'll find Paul making an almost identical statement there. Almost identical. But here, as he stands in front of Felix, he says, So I always strive to keep my conscience clear before God and man. And that is such an important, universal, across-the-board, Christian life, value, desire, and intention. Because do you know what this is about? This is about chasing after authenticity. This is about seeking to be blameless before God and man. This is about setting out with the absolute desire to please God in what I say, and in all I say and do. This is about a commitment to obedience. Is your conscience clear this morning before God? Is your conscience clear this morning before one another? It's a huge issue. Massive. For Paul, a clear conscience was the driving factor in his life as a Christian. Being true to his faith, true to his identity as a member of the way were paramount. It wasn't enough to say all this stuff. It wasn't even enough to believe it. He wanted to live it. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear. This is about a pursuit of holiness. This is about maintaining this very close connection that we're all called to maintain between belief and behavior so that there are no glaring credibility gaps. And for all Christians, this is critical. Because whenever our behavior contradicts our beliefs, whenever our actions betray our words, Whenever our words betray us, whenever we do our own thing and go our own way, our conscience is not clear before God and before man. And our witness and our defense of our faith suffers. This doesn't mean we've got to be perfect. Doesn't mean we never say or do anything wrong, but what it does mean is that we always aim for holiness. And that we confess and we make amends for our sin whenever we do mess up. For Paul, he would not dream of doing anything deliberately wrong that would offend God or offend others. 
I strive always. This is my intention. This is my explicit desire, and it absolutely must be mine. You see, our attitudes, words, and actions are a key aspect of our defense of our Christianity. Our attitudes, our words, and our actions are also one of the reasons most people reject Christianity. For Paul, as he spoke in defense of himself and of his faith, he was able to say in this time, quoting the message, believe me, I do my level best to keep my conscience clear before God and before my neighbors in everything, everything I do. So I find, I find God's word, I've often shared this with you, preparing to stand up here and speak, I find a humbling experience because I've kind of got to filter this through my own life before I have any right to stand up here. And when I come across a thought like this, an idea like this, a truth like this, a comment like this, and I filter the last 24, 48 hours, the last week through this lens, I do my level best, do I? To keep my conscience clear before God. And everything I say and think and do. And if we remember or hear nothing else this morning, please take that phrase and consider, can I echo it? And let's allow Paul's desire to kind of influence and inform ours before God and before others. Let's go back to the text. Let's read what happens next. Let's stand again. Last time. Still with me? Yeah. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about his faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now, you may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bride, so, bribe, not bride, bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Pacorius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Take a seat. Paul spends 730 days in prison. Two years sitting in a Caesarean prison cell waiting on a governor to make up his mind who, as it turns out, never does. Don't miss that bit. That's huge. How frustrating must that have been? Think of all that Paul could have done in those two years. Think of all the places he could have traveled to. And yet, for two years, he's grounded, stuck, restricted, and unable to do very much. But one of the striking features of Scripture is the amount of time, the surprising amount of time that many people have to spend waiting. Waiting on God, waiting on a breakthrough, waiting for things to change, and we've thought about this before, but divine delays are everywhere in the big story. 
From Abraham and Sarah waiting for a lifetime, literally for a promised son, to Joseph waiting for years for his dream to be fulfilled. From Moses waiting for 40 years to become Israel's deliverer, to the children of Israel having to wait another 40 years before they're able to enter the promised land. From David waiting for years from when he is anointed to when he actually becomes king, to Israel waiting for decades and centuries for the Messiah to arrive. Delays and deferrals appear regularly in Scripture. They seem to be an integral part of God's timetable as opposed to ours. And it's often during those times of waiting or through those period, periods that God accomplishes his purposes. And Paul and his friends must have wondered, why am I having to hang around here for two years while some guy can't make up his mind? While some guy can't decide one way or the other whether I'm guilty or not, he can't pass a verdict. Why am I stuck here for 730 days? Whenever so much more could be done, so many churches need visited, so many believers need built up in their faith. But he has to wait. And if you're here this morning and you find yourself fed up waiting on God, waiting for God to show up and alter something, change something, answer your prayers, please can I encourage you to take a step back and try to appreciate there, there may be something bigger and better going on. In fact, the waiting itself may be a godsend because it's in that place and in that space that God is accomplishing his purposes in your life and through your life. Waiting is hard. It can feel so unnecessary and yet... As scripture teaches us, waiting is time well spent. And the one thing we do know, because we have no idea really what Paul did for those two years, but the one thing we do know is that every now and again, he had a conversation with Felix and his wife, his third wife, who was a daughter of Herod Agrippa I. But every now and again, they would send for Paul and have a chat with him. But as Felix listened to Paul, it made him feel afraid. And so whenever he listened to Paul and it scared him, he pulled the plug and said, enough for now, go away. I'll send for you when the time's more convenient. And I'm sure you've heard this before, but the Christian gospel comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. And someone has said that Paul was good at the former, but he specialized in the latter. And you know, whenever the message of Jesus, whenever the gospel, and this, this is where it all gets again up close and personal to me, okay? But whenever the message of Jesus and the gospel is faithfully shared, it often provokes a reaction. It gets under the skin. It unsettles people, especially whenever you include the kind of aspects that Paul included. Look at what Paul talked about. And this kind of takes me back to the opening question. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. You see, those were, those still are vitally emotive issues. These are the kind of things that disturb people. 
And the challenge for us as individuals and as a church community is, are we willing? Are we prepared to discuss those subjects with those who are not yet Christians? Or are these kind of subjects too far outside our comfort zone? They're too direct, David, to talk about these kind of issues with people. Too personal, too risky. Paul didn't duck them, not because he wanted to confront or scare Felix, but because he knew that if you're going to speak about faith, if you're going to speak about faith in Christ Jesus, you simply can't avoid these kind of issues or else you are diluting or toning down the message. And I've got to be really honest this morning I've got to search my heart and I've got to ask, is this my default? Do I deliberately steer clear, step round, tiptoe through, avoid these kind of subjects? For Felix, talk about righteousness. Talking about right living. Talking about morality. That's what, that's what this is all wrapped, that's what's all wrapped up in this phrase where Paul spoke about righteousness. Talking about morality, talking about people's lifestyle choices. <clears throat> Let's not go there. Or talking about self-control, which raises issues such as having to face up to sin and the need to exercise self-restraint. Or even more still, Talking about the judgment to come, that every single one of us is going to have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for our life. When was the last time I mentioned judgment to anyone? And each of those issues and all of those issues had a raw nerve with Felix and so he kicked for touch. And he couldn't deal with them and he wouldn't deal with them but there was something about what Paul said that meant he kept sending for him. Now, I know there is a wee reference in there that he actually thought Paul was going to give him a bribe, but there was more to it than that. This was someone who was intrigued by this kind of talk, by these issues, by being confronted, by being exposed, by being challenged, by being stretched, by having to think of things beyond himself. And I want to suggest that if we have the courage, if I have the courage to talk about issues, now I'm not talking about rant and rave about them, please, no. I'm not talking about forcing them down anyone's throat. I'm not talking about standing on soapboxes or in corners shouting at people about them. I'm talking about are we willing, like Paul, to spend time, maybe two years and then some, sharing these issues with people as the opportunity arises? Because when we do, then who knows or God knows what will happen. Am I prepared to share a fully orbed gospel message or a slightly moderated version that tones everything down? And I'll be honest before God this morning and honest before you as a congregation, that is my default. It seems that Felix never accepted Paul's message. And as we all know, everyone won't by any stretch of the imagination. But you know something? It's not our responsibility. It's God who saves. It's God who rescues. It's God who transforms lives. Our responsibility is to be his witnesses, his ambassadors, his gospel communicators in word and action. 
That's what I'm called to. And so as we leave here this morning, I hope and pray we'll take at least two questions with us for further reflection, and here they are. Can I echo Paul's intention to strive always to keep a clear conscience before God and man? Am I going to do my level best? And am I willing to raise and discuss the difficult issues of righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come with others?